Please be seated, and if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We have this Sunday, and we have next Sunday, and we will conclude our study of the book of Hebrews uh, next Sunday. So these two sermons remaining, and this morning we'll be reading from Hebrews 13, verses 10 to 19. But before I do, let me emphasize this. The author of Hebrews has been emphasizing the importance of looking forward, even leaning forward in the Christian life. Looking forward, leaning forward by faith. And this morning there should be two things, at least two things that stand out in the passage that we'll hear. And I want you to listen for them as we read it. And those are what we have and what we have to look forward to. So what we have and what we have to look forward to. So give your attention to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 10 to 19. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good, and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Let's pray that God would help us understand and apply His holy word. Lord, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you bring to focus and to our attention the things that we should understand, the things that we should seek to apply? So, Lord, be at work in our midst by your Spirit. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we all make the same kinds of mistakes, whether we're children or adults. Sometimes children and adults can focus on what we don't have and focus on what we wish we had rather than focusing on what we do have, right? 
Maybe you've had this conversation with a child who, who wanted a toy or who wanted something. And never mind the fact they have a toy box full of toys. It's the one toy they don't have, and they're zeroed in on that one thing. We can focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have. A story, an image to remember. I want you to picture in your mind a young child who's invited to a friend's birthday party. He goes to his friend's birthday party, and, and you know how this works. Children see other kids' toy boxes and their rooms and their homes and all of their stuff. And there can be a little bit of envy that begins to work in a child's heart. And as that child went over to the birthday party at the friend's house, the parents brought presents. And the little child opens up a present. It was very heavy, very heavy. And the child opens up a piggy bank. A piggy bank like the visiting child had never seen before. And it was chock full of what the child would call brown pennies. And the visiting child saw that piggy bank. He saw it chock full of those brown pennies. And he went home to his parents and said, I wish I had a piggy bank. Why can't I have a piggy bank? Mom and dad thought about it. We'll pick up on that story in a few minutes. There are three things that I want to emphasize this morning. Quite simply, they're this. It's what we have. It's what we will have. And it's why we have it. And the first thing we're told in verse 10 of chapter 13 is that we have an altar. We have an altar. And if you're a child this morning, it's probably not too excited to hear, well, you have an altar. Well, what do you do with an altar? You need to understand what an altar is. And, and remember that Hebrews, if you've been with us, is talking a lot about altars. He's talking a lot about worship. He's talking a lot about bloodshed. But quite simply, an altar was this. It was a platform that was large enough, strong enough to support the weight of large animals that they might be slaughtered that their blood might be shed, that sacrifices of those dead animals could be made and could be lifted up. Now, I know that's complex and complicated. The author of Hebrews has talked about that, and we've addressed it in previous sermons. But the beauty of Scripture and what the author is saying here is that that wooden platform, that altar that was designed to offer up sacrifices, for us, it's turned into a table. It's not just a platform, it now becomes a family feasting table. And what the author says to these Christians who remember the context is they were thinking about leaving the Christian faith, some of them. They were thinking about abandoning everything that they had heard of Jesus to go back to their practice of Hebrew faith as Jews. And here he is saying, look, we have an altar that they who don't believe in Jesus, who continue to sacrifice animals, they do not have access to the same altar that we do. Now, what's interesting uh, at work here is this. So when I was in seminary, I had a 
a lot of wonderful professors, and one of them was, was Jerem Bars. Some of you are familiar with him. You may have read him. He was a colleague with Francis Schaeffer. And he used to, to emphasize loudly and clearly to us that in ministry, always avoid the us versus them mentality. Avoid the us versus them mentality. And you know what? There's a lot of wisdom there. Because in the church, it can become us versus them. And that can create an unhealthy mindset or posture in, in ministry. And, and he's right in his emphasis to us to do that. However, when you read the passage, there is an us versus them flavor to what the author of Hebrews is saying to these Christians. Did you hear what he had to say? He says, we have access to an altar that they have no right to. So there is an us versus them dynamic. And here the author of Hebrews is using it to, as sobering smelling salts to help these people realize this is what you have. You have an altar. They, if you return to them, you lose that altar. Do not lose your access to that altar by abandoning Jesus. So there is this sense of an us versus them. And we need to identify what we have in Jesus. We have an altar. We have a table. We have full and free access of the one true God. We're made acceptable by that altar. And God is made accessible to us. Rick Phillips says on this subject, he says, unless worship relies utterly on the work of Christ and his substitutionary atonement, it is alien and is foreign to the true religion of Scripture, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through his redeeming blood. And that is the point of the altar. The altar is all about Jesus, the person of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. That is what we have. And it encapsulates everything the gospel promises sinners. And you have that, is what the author is saying. We have an altar. Now, some commentators think this, and I think they're right. The reason the author is probably saying that is that those Christians who were thinking about abandoning the altar that they had to go back to the previous sacrificial system because it was because they were being pressured. The reasoning of the day was to say, you Christians don't even have a meal. You don't have an altar. You don't have this visible, beautiful worship that you've always had in your past and that we still have. Don't you want to participate with us because you have so little? And you can kind of see that, that, wow, this long tradition of sacrifices and, and then you don't do it anymore. And some of these Christians are probably thinking, wow, we kind of do miss that routine and that ceremony that was so beautiful. It was great to participate as a community. And they could listen to those chirping voices and start to think, well, what we don't have anymore what we've lost. And the author of Hebrews is saying, just like to a child, you're not thinking about what you have. 
You're listening to the chirping voices that make you think you're missing out. But you have something that they have no right to, he says. They have no access to. So consider the chirping voices in your own ear, in our own culture. Is there any chirping voice that can make you think, well, I'm missing out on the best of life because I'm following Jesus. I wish I could be like the other kids on the team or the other kids in school or the other families that have so much freedom on the weekends. They don't have to go to church on Sunday. They can take up and leave and have a long weekend every week. We sure are missing out by having to go to church. Can any part of you listen to that chirping voice within and feel like you're missing out? Understand the author of Hebrews is saying, do you see what you have? See it for what it is, the beauty of it, the grace of it, how it strengthens you. You have an altar. And that means everything. Secondly, the author of Hebrews says, we have a city. We have a city that is yet to come. It's the promise of a city. Now, when we hear this today, how great would it be to have a city? Through our contemporary context, cities are what? They're dangerous. They're crime-ridden. They're, they're impoverished. They're scary places to be, right? And we're glad to live in the country. Those of us who live in the country, you don't want to live in the city. People everywhere getting in your way, slowing you down. What's good about a city? Well, in this world, there are some benefits to the city. To the city, but there, there's a lot that makes the city a scary, hard, and dark place. We also know in this life that cities crumble over time. They decay. Buildings decay and are abandoned. Bridges collapse. People decay and collapse. The grass withers. The flower fades. It's the word of our Lord that stands forever. And in fact, some years after the writing of this letter, we believe, Jerusalem would fall in A.D. 70. Jerusalem itself as a city would collapse, would fall. And so, is it good news to be told there's a city for you? The good news is that it's not like a city we know in this life or in this world. God promises His people His city. A city that is characterized not by crime and poverty and misery, but by things like joy and peace and safety and plenty and light and gold and neighbors that are like family members, the good kind of family members. It's a different kind of city. It's what the Scriptures call the new heavenly Jerusalem. Not the earthly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Years ago, Sandra McCracken, one of the indelible grace artists who tinkered with some hymns, she tinkered with a hymn by Thomas Kelly called Abiding City. And it's taken from this passage in Hebrews. Listen to this description of this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, and capture the beauty of this newness of this new city. It says this, O sweet home 
of love and peace. Where pilgrims tired and troubled rest. Into the hope of Zion lean. Where in Jesus' arms we will fall at last. Addictions empty promises. This broken world cannot satisfy. A sweeter song, redemption's bliss, is sealed for us in paradise. Spirit, heal our neighborhood until your kingdom work is done. Teach us what is just and good as we look for the city that is yet to come. A city filled with gold and light, God the builder and the architect. When our faith is turned to sight, in widest robes we will be dressed. Oh, I cannot imagine it. Oh, lift up your head, for the day is near, for we have no abiding city here. Which is a little bit cumbersome to our ears, but what, what she's saying, or what Thomas Kelly is saying, and what the passage of Hebrews is saying is, our city is not here. Our city is yet to come. So make sure that you're not so earthly-minded that you've lost the heavenly reality that Jesus says is your eternity. It is your promise. It is what He has for you. We have an altar. We have a city. Those are things that we have that cannot be taken from us. Now that's His appeal to these people who are thinking about going backwards to, Ju to Judaism, to practicing Old Testament sacrifices. You have an altar, you have a city. Well, how do we have those things? Well, quite simply, it's because he says, because you have a Savior. You have a Redeemer who has purchased those things for you. He has accomplished those things for you. You have an altar, you have a city, because you have a Redeemer. And he says in verses 11 to 13, that that Savior suffered for them and that He did so outside the camp. Well, we understand the suffering of Jesus and we've heard what the author has said in previous chapters of, of Hebrews. We understood that blood needed to shed, that a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, had to be offered up for the sins of the people. We understand that Jesus is that Lamb that Passover lamb of God. We understand that in the book of Hebrews, did you know this? Blood is mentioned 24 times. Faith is mentioned 34 times. And so the book of Hebrews is all about that Savior, that Redeemer, that Lamb. Blood and faith, the two things that go together in the name of Jesus. But what about this language of suffering outside the city, outside the city gate, outside of the people of God? What, what is that notion that he's making? Well, let me read this and try to explain this because I think there's some real beauty for us here this morning. There was a very carefully prescribed ritual that was followed on Yom Kippur. First, the high priest would offer a bull in sacrifice for his own sin. Then he would take two goats and present them before the Lord. Casting lots, 
he would choose one of the goats to be sacrificed, and the other goat would be kept alive as a scapegoat. Next, the high priest would sacrifice the goat along with a ram, and he would take the blood of the bull, the ram, and the goat, and he would go by himself into the most holy place, the very sacred place in the inner temple where God was symbolically present in the Ark of the Covenant. There he would sprinkle the blood of the animals on the mercy seat. And when that was accomplished, he would come out and ceremonially lay his hands on the head of the living goat and confess all the sins of the people of Israel. Then someone was appointed to take that scapegoat out into the wilderness to be let go. And the goat symbolically carried with it all the confessed sins of the people. Now, all of that is the background to Hebrews and things we've heard already about blood and about the sacrificial system. But listen to this last component of the ritual. Then, in the final ritual of the day, the priest would take the remaining carcasses of the sacrificed animals and he would take them outside the camp in order to burn them. What in the world is going on here? Well, I think it's really simple. And it's so simple that there's this beautiful truth to it. So where I live, technically in Donald, South Carolina, we don't have a trash service that comes by the house that, that picks up our, our garbage, our refuse. We have to go to what we call the dump. And about at least once a week, sometimes once every two weeks, I will load up our trailer with all of our household refuse, our garbage, and we drive out of town to the dump. On my way to GPC, I pass, oh, excuse me, they call it in, in Greenwood, the convenience center. In, in the city of Greenwood, it's a convenience center. We call it the dump where I am. But, but I want you to think about your experience with that. It's always away from people. It's away from the residential area. It's outside the camp. Uh, even in Due West, there's this pit near the fire station, for those who know it. They've dug out a big, it's a big gully, and they've made it deeper. But everybody is welcome to go throw their Christmas trees and their grass clippings and their limbs in the dump. But it's away from the residential area. It's outside the camp. And so that principle that we have is really similar, I think, to what's happening here. There are things that you do in the city and within the city gates, but the unclean things, the harder things, the difficult things, those are done outside the city gate. Those are places of refuse, of garbage. That's where the dump is found. And the author of Hebrews is telling us, he's reminding us that in the Old Testament, after those animals were slain on the altar, you would have carcasses that remained, hide and bones. Well, what do you do with that? You don't let it sit in the city. You take it out to the dump. You get rid of it. And everybody has always had a designated place for the refuse, for the unclean things that are required for a city to function. And here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. 
Jesus, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, who himself had the right to sit on the throne in the city of Jerusalem, was taken outside the camp to the dump. That's where he met his people. That's how he was treated. That's how he would purchase the redemption of his people's sins. And then do you see what the author of Hebrews says? He says, you too are to go outside the camp to identify with Jesus in all of that shame. You too are going to be treated that way. Don't be afraid to go outside the camp where there is no glory, where there is a place of being despised and rejected of men. That's the imagery of what our Savior has done for us. He suffered outside the camp, the place of no glory, the place of shame. In verse, where is it? Verse 13, listen again. Let us then go to Him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace He bore. Now remember the context of who He's talking to. These people who are thinking about abandoning their faith because it's hard. They'll say things like, you don't have an altar. Don't you wish you had an altar? And they're like, okay, well, maybe we, maybe we want to go back to the Old Testament altar. And he says, no. You identify with the disgrace of Jesus. You suffer with him outside the camp. Rick Phillips says this about our willingness to identify with Jesus outside the camp. He says, if you want acceptance in the court of respectable academia, if you want to be admired in the cocktail lounge of worldly wisdom, then you must stay within the confines of the worldly city. Because the cross and all of its grace is found outside the camp. Among the world's refuse, despise, and shame. Do you see that? That's the call to discipleship. To take up your cross and follow Jesus. To abandon the world's pat on the back. The silver medal awards that the world will hang around your neck. The certificates of achievement that the world will give you. Saying none of that's, none of that's outside the camp. It's just going to be you and God's people. But you'll have Jesus there. Now go there and identify with him. Don't look for the blessings or the pats on the back that this world offers. Two more quick things. In verse 15, he says this, because Jesus did that for us. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Are you willing to identify with Jesus outside the camp? And are you willing to speak of him? To offer the fruit of your lips? Because what he has done is true. And you believe it to be true. And you're not embarrassed to be identified with him. Even when the world mocks. Even when the world says, but you don't have an altar. We speak of Jesus. We do have an altar. We have an altar that they have no right to. If they will not come in Jesus and by his blood and righteousness, they have no right to the altar that we have. And then secondly, and this is a bonus. 
I call it a bonus. Listen to verse 17 again. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And as I thought about that this week, it's just kind of added on there, as well as this admonition he gives to remember to do good, to be kind to others. These two little add-ons that are so pastoral in nature. But what he's reminding us there is that God's people have always, always, always had a system of accountability and submission. And that's probably good to, to remind ourselves. Do you know that everyone in our ministry at GPC, everyone who identifies who is a member, who is an elder, who is a deacon, who is a pastor, do you understand that everybody submits and is accountable to someone? There is no one free from that structure. The pastors answer to the presbytery. The elders answer to the presbytery. The members answer to the session, to the body of elders. Everybody is accountable. Everybody gives an account. And so all of us need to be reminded, these are the leaders God has given us. It's a bonus. He's not just left us in this world unaccountable without oversight and direction. And he's reminding his readers, the author of Hebrews is reminding them, God's given you leaders. He's given you leaders. There's a system in place that's for your good. He's given us an altar. He's given us a city. There's a bonus. He's even given us a structure of oversight, accountability for the good of shepherding our souls. And he reminds us in verse 16, do good and share with others. And I'll just simply say about that, it's because we have to be reminded to do good and share with others. It'll be our fallen nature, our instinct to not do good and to not share with others. And so he reminds them that's how God's people live in this world. Let me close and return to that image of the child who went to the birthday party and saw the piggy bank like he had never seen, chock full of brown pennies. Mom and dad thought long and hard about, well, what do we do? You know, piggy banks are good things. And mom and dad decided, well, let's, let's be generous and abundant. So for the next birthday, they presented their child a piggy bank. But this piggy bank was a little different. It didn't have pennies in it. Mom and dad had put silver coins in this piggy bank, nickels, and dimes and quarters. And so when that young child opened up their piggy bank and saw that it was full of silver coins, imagine if that child said, I wanted brown coins, not silver ones. And mom and dad, this is not a true story, by the way, I made it up. <laughs> Mom and dad are like, you've got to be kidding me. You don't understand what you have. How would you want to go trade this for a piggy bank full of brown coins? And there's a sense in which that's what's going on in the book of Hebrews and what the author is saying. How could you want to abandon the altar that you have for brown pennies? You're not thinking well. You're thinking like a child. And so if, if the Hebrews needed to hear it, from their author, I suppose we need to hear it too. 
Maybe our hearts are grumbling and we're mad and we're shaking our fist internally at God because He's given us silver coins and not the brown pennies our human hearts wanted. Can you see what He has given you? All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And He promises that altar leads to a feast. And the altar takes us to a city. The city of Zion. And so we're going to close in song in just a moment before we come to the table. And be reminded that we've been promised that there is a feast. There is a table for us because of Jesus. And there is a city in which that feast will be had. It's Zion. It's, it's the new Jerusalem. That is what we have. That is what we have to look forward to. The grass really does wither. The flower really does fade. And it really is the Word of God that stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, would you once more remind us what it is we have in Jesus? And Lord, if we have thought we had little and that the world had more to offer, would you forgive us? And even now as we sing this truth, Lord, would you sear it into our hearts that we might remember this and marvel over the truth of what we have in Jesus and what is yet to come for us. We ask it, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.